See, the problem with drinking seltzer while running a podcast is every time you pour it back, it goes psst, and then it's going to just. God damn it, you're right. <laughs> Welcome, everyone. Welcome back. Episode four of Bad Methods, a podcast critically examining trends in research across the many fields of science. Yay. I'm Devin. I'm Mona. Uh, now, we know we've been gone for a while. I mean, this is kind of a thing at this point. This we're, we're still learning. We're, yeah, we're still learning. Um, we just recently learned that uh, you can automate post-production and, believe it or not, uh, audio editing and development is a science. Would you believe it? I, I didn't know. No, I didn't uh, either. I, I was, yeah, I, I was really hoping we could just, like, you know, record stuff and just throw it up. But, like, we spent, what, I guess, like, what, like, 15 minutes before recording this, just, like, sorting out, like, our sound quality, which, thankful to all of our listeners who've given us some, like, much-needed feedback on ways in which we can improve, like, sound quality uh, so people can hear us better and engage with the podcast better. Yeah, and we've learned a lot from just actually, like, reading guides put out by other podcasters which has been super helpful like we're we're growing or we're learning this this is a this is a process we're, we're being scientists here or like messing up and learning from the messing up that's kind of how it goes pretty much um but a lot's been going on since we've been gone for about like the month a lot of things in science a lot of interesting trends going on yeah um but i guess you know i should probably start off with like well, like, what are the both of us reading? Like, Mona, what have you been reading recently? I've been reading a book that's just kind of filled me with, like, I don't know, define. I don't know if, what the right word is. I've been. It's been filling me with some kind of rage. I haven't quite identified what kind. Ooh. Kind of an indignant rage. Indignant rage. So I've been reading uh, Technically Wrong by Sarah Wachter Butcher, I think is her name. Um, I... I'm defaulting to the German pronunciation of her name. Okay. Uh, but we'll put the link in the description anyway. Um, so this book came recommended to me since I started working in tech. Uh, and it's mainly about uh, different forms of biases that exist in the tech industry, which tends to be very heavily dominated by white men. Mm. And then the types of blind spots that can then be associated with being part of a very monolithic group. Mm, interesting. They talk a lot about different areas of tech, like some of the big companies like Google and Facebook and stuff and different things that have come to light over the last few years in terms of the way they interact with different uh, groups that they work with, um, how they collect and interpret their data. Mm -hmm. And really it's just been pretty... It's been pretty awesome. I'm only about halfway through the book, but I'm already just like, oh my god, like, I've done half this shit in the work that I've done. I've seen people do some of the work here, like, do some work in areas that we may actually have done some kind of harm, or not even harm, like, it's more like... Is this more of, like, the culture within tech companies and how they go about collecting information? from users or more so how they have like users engage with like their technology like how like what's 
Uh, like what's kind of like the book so far getting at? I would say both. Um, okay. So the book talks a lot about how things are set up for users to interact with. Like everything down to how a platform sets up their forms, encourages you to subscribe to their platform, and then sends you notifications on your phone is discussed at length here. So like mm -hmm. how often do platforms maybe like encourage one of the one of the companies was sent out a notification of like, oh, Valentine's Day is coming up. Get this thing for your boyfriend and send it out to a bunch of people who coincidentally did not date men. And Ooh. okay. Yeah, just pretty much like how a lot of approaches in technology are and then I think this comes a lot from statistics and data science too is like how do we try to predict trends for like the majority of people which assumes first of all that there is a norm or a normal group of people that you can actually assess this about okay so like so like oh you know we're making a platform and we want it to be available to most people or whatever a general audience and then there's an assumption that yeah like there might be people who are left out but the bigger assumption is that there is a majority of people who all appro would approach their technology in the exact same way. Hmm. Yeah. And really, like, one of the big questions I'm getting out of this and thinking about my own work is, like, does every group have a norm? Like, is for every, like, concept, every, like, I don't know, technology platform, interest, uh book preference health trend or something is there a norm for ev everything out there or are there some areas in which there just isn't a group of people that you can identify as the norm or the majority that is an interesting question are are these individual like tech companies like areas basically just trying to find like a basic like, a central norm to kind of categorize users into kind is of that I think it's also that, like, if you're developing some type of technology or service or product or something, you want to know who your market is, mm -hmm. which then you get, like, sort of has some inherent assumptions built into it that there is a typical user of your platform. Okay. And that there are a coherent set of behaviors in which all of those typical users tend to do when they interact with your platform. And a lot of that involves you having to proactively think about what that might be. So, because you don't necessarily know if you're trying to build something new in technology, mm -hmm. uh, you don't necessarily know what your typical user might look like. So you make a lot of assumptions. Okay. Uh, sometimes they're based on more data than, uh, than others. It really depends on what it is you're actually doing. But a lot of times you're doing what's called creating a proxy. And this was another chapter in the book that was pretty interesting was how like, Google in particular, when they started consolidating a lot of their information, like from diff different areas into like one profile to actually like collect all the data associated with a single user on all the different things that Google has, like YouTube, like Google searches, like Google Plus for whoever, I guess, still uses that. Um, and then really just try to get a sense of, like, what are these people doing and why and what an what questions can we answer given all of this data. And so Google started off by using this data to try to assume, like, what are the gender of our users? And then a lot of women in tech got categorized as men by Google because they associated high volumes of search for technology with men. 
Mm. And that's a very simplistic example and maybe something that's a little less potentially harmful, but the idea is then using that proxy, it's then assumed, okay, great, so now we think this user is a guy. Let's then assume this user is a guy or any specific gender, I guess, given the, sp- given the searches, and then try to predict what they're going to do given other conditions and then draw conclusions about how, oh, this is how men behave or this is how... Men, people that we think are men behave, but we don't actually know that they're men. We're just assuming that they're men. That's pretty bad. I mean, so this is just like a culture of like individual like tech firms and companies making a ton of assumptions about their users based on proxy data that they have and then going from there to kind of categorize users. That is a big part of it, yes. It also, Mm. like, I really just recommend you check this book out for yourself. I think depending on what area of work uh, you're in or what what things interest you in particular about technology, you'll get different values out of different chapters of this book. But it's an important thing to consider when you're approaching any types of technology is, like, where might there be a biased approach in the research used, like, like, the research that uses this data because pretty much most technology companies have some data scientists and researchers trying to answer questions given the data that they collect on their platform. Yep. And it's important to think about where there may be false conclusions drawn that then reinforce assumptions that could potentially harm people or at the very least mislead people about how people behave, what types of technology people need and want and what platforms should look like to in some way maximize benefit again that really does depend on the context like if you're coming up with an app that's meant to actually like improve people's lives or something or do some good for society you want to make sure you're getting your shit right true i mean this like goes into a larger issue and like kind of the subjectivity within data science um and especially just like this ties into like the book we both read um weapons of math destruction uh by kathy o'neill um and just like the nature of algorithms as a whole that are hidden um that don't have a lot of like collaborative input but that are just like set up structured black box like machine learning algorithms that pull in proxy data with tons of assumptions um and like at least in that book in particular um not just focused on in tech but in other areas like policing and schools and higher education can have some really kind of detrimental effects to users and communities yeah and building back upon that technically wrong actually has a chapter that gives an excellent user-friendly explanation of what an algorithm actually is because it's like that's really helpful yeah because in general like most people can conceptually define an algorithm or use it in a sentence and people will know what you're talking about Mm -hmm. but if you're talking about algorithms that are often hidden behind walls and treated as proprietary information it's often very hard to figure out what that is what's being patented and how one can even begin to interpret the information you're getting out of it given that algorithm I mean, and like algorithms can be like as complex as something like some kind of like what, like neural network situation or something as simple as like one plus one, one plus one or like some kind of like matching algorithm of like kind of like basing on like outputs of like categorical data. Yeah. So Mona. Yeah. We used to be scientists or academics. Yes. Part of that job involves, uh, writing papers and trying to get them published, correct? Yes. 
that's pretty much one of the main goals of academic research is to produce scientific papers published in peer-reviewed journals, which we've talked about a little bit in previous episodes, which is a pretty lengthy process. It's pretty lengthy. It's like you submit a paper, it could take months to hear back uh, with like final like initial first round of reviews or edits to your paper, uh, which you then need to address. And then once you address those, hopefully um, you address them sufficiently so that the editor will accept your paper um, and it will officially be published. Yeah, so it really depends on the journal in terms of how grueling this process is. Like, if you're submitting to one of the more popular journals, it could often take, like, possibly, like, over a year to actually get your paper published, maybe even longer. If you're publishing in a little bit of a less-known journal, it often takes maybe six months from start to finish. Because there's first the paper is given to the editor who will return it furiously with any uh, stylistic, like, errors and issues in which you violated, where it's like, you... There is a style guide. Why did you not adhere to this format? Why is this comma in the wrong place? Blah, 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 blah. Um, And then once the editor's okay with it, your paper is then given to three reviewers who are considered to be experts in the area of the paper that you're publishing. Mm -hmm. Or as close to an expert. It really depends on what it is and how new your idea is in that given moment. And they review it and give you some pretty lengthy feedback as to what they, how they think it is, uh, what they think you should be changing up, reviewing, uh, modifying, potentially addressing things that are unclear. Um, and then once that's done, you do revisions, you submit it back. If the reviewers are okay with it, your paper is then accepted and published. Yeah. Now, you would think, like, with a process like this, like, this would kind of, like, you know, ensure that, you know, shoddy science or, like, you know, poor science isn't, you know, being just pumped out. Um, one would hope that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, even going back to that, I remember actually being surprised when I got to grad school that there were, like, tiers of journals. That, like, just certain journals were just seen as, like, more important uh, or, as the word is, like, more impactful Um, Yeah, journals have what's called an impact factor, which is a single number that you can assess essentially like how big the readership is, how often people cite the journals and like how high profile the actual findings within that actual journal within that journal tend to be, which is sort of a proxy for like, oh, well, how real or reliable are these actual findings? Yeah. So we've got hierarchy of journals. Yes. We've got a peer review process that involves having people in your field which you're trying to submit this paper to, going through it, providing feedback, critiques. Some of them can be helpful. Some of them can be very harsh. Yeah. And there's kind of a there's kind of a running joke. Uh, if you actually follow us on Twitter, we, we retreated that uh, another account called Ethics and Bricks that gave a Halloween idea as uh, dressing up as reviewer two. Which was, um, which was a little, the, the image associated with, with it was a little Lego man holding a fiery torch. I, I remember um, when I was trying to publish a, a paper of mine way back when, uh, Reviewer 2, uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't even know this was a trope back then, but Reviewer 2 is normally like the most hostile of the reviewers in the process. They're basically, in many instances, like, why did you even write this? Right. It's, like, it's, it's almost like there's an algorithm where all three reviewers submit their reviews and whoever's is the longest and most dickish gets assigned number two. They get assigned, yeah. Reviewer 2 is absolutely the worst. 
But all in all, one would hope that this peer review process ensures that the best research is getting pumped out, um, the most accurate research is getting pumped out, and it's actually furthering the scholarly literature in a particular subfield. Yeah, because you assume that, uh, or at least the, the main goal here is that peers in your field take a look at your paper and then can say, like, dude, you're way out of touch with this idea. What the fuck are you talking about? Like, yep. go out and get some air and get out of your lab for like a week or something. Like, <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, we bring this all up because this comes, uh, this is re- related to a article in New York Times that I came across a while back, um, which was, which revealed that three academics, um, had basically spent about a year essentially trolling a ton of academic journals by sending off fake or joke papers to individual journals to try to get them published. And horrifyingly enough, they actually got a few accepted. Uh, and, like, these aren't, like, you know, dodgy papers with maybe, like, fudge numbers. These are just, like, poorly theoretically constructed papers. I'm talking about, like, what's one of these papers? Like, right. dogs having sex in the park being related to, like, the male gaze. Right. And the one thing to keep in mind with this uh, article is that these three academics we're really trying to assess whether or not critical theory type journals um, actually have the tools to evaluate the material that's being submitted to them and what criteria they use to determine whether or not your paper is going to be published by submitting outlandish mock papers to these journals. Yeah. And like, I think like that's like the, that's like the important part to like this piece. Like they were targeting specific papers, uh, papers in like in critical theory, feminist theory, generally fields that generally tend to like deconstruct, uh, societal problems or like focus on the marginalization of different groups, systemic oppression. Um, the idea was that can these articles, can these journals distinguish between papers that just seem to purport messages that they just already agree with right like uh are they just like papers that seem to confirm their own biases about an idea like are there certain phrases and heuristics that people read and they're like oh yeah this is great we should publish it on our platform yeah you're like any uh, any paper that just said well at the end of the day this is just like men controlling women um they'll accept it. Uh, that was what they were trying to figure out, trying to figure out some of these journals are just going to accept papers that come to these kinds of conclusions, um, irrespective of the rigor and quality of the methods used to construct their arguments or to collect their data or even analyze their data. So this is like what these three these three researchers claimed uh, they were doing. Um, and I actually think there is some good here in the idea of seeing if journals themselves are actually paying attention to the rigor within papers are submitted, the quality in which they're done. But I think there's a bigger problem with this kind of hoax that was committed, mainly in their targeted area of fields, because they were going after like the critical theory, the feminist theory, um, papers that focus on like aspects of identity um, from a social and cultural perspective. Um, because an unintended consequence of this is that you have respected authors and scholars in academia as a whole pointing to this hoax as a reason for why those particular fields are quote-unquote nonsense. And I think that's an unintended con- consequence that needs to be addressed. Um, this was a hoax that had some good intentions and probably wanted to keep certain areas of academia, or I would even argue academia as a whole, 
um, on its toes about how it goes about publishing papers, but in the process potentially defacing and degrading certain particular areas. Right. Like, there's no point in academia where the reviewers should be lax about the types of papers that are actually submitted to them. Mm -hmm. I can tell you actually an interesting quick story where uh, one of my old professors whose labs I worked in as an undergraduate told me a story about a time that he was asked to review, I believe it was a grant submission, not a paper, but the peer review system was set up pretty similarly. Uh, Somebody had written a proposal for a study and cited a bunch of like research as to like why he thinks his idea would work. He like, oh, based on all this previous research, we think that like this is our hypothesis, this is the outcome we hope, this is why we need the money to do this, this is the impact we're supposed to have. And he was telling me that while he was reading this proposal, he was like, This sounds familiar. And just going through the entire thing and realizing, holy shit, this is a paper I wrote. What? So he literally ended up being a reviewer on somebody who plagiarized his fucking work. That's... Re- no. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And I don't know, like, I think, like I said, I, I think I'm on, this, I'm on the same page with Devin on this one, where he points out the importance of actually, like, criticizing journals and looking at where our own heuristics and shortcuts in terms of determining whether or not a piece of work belongs in a peer-reviewed journal may not be rigorous enough. But there's sort of an implicit assumption here that this problem is unique to this one area. Yeah. Whereas there's so little work looking into whether or not this was... Like, like they didn't even look into whether or not this was a problem in other areas. Like Exactly. There are critical theory... Like, if we're going with, like, theory-based journals where you generally have more of an analysis-type paper as opposed to an experiment that walks through methods and results... Um, they're not all left-wing feminist, blah, blah, blah. You know, they're not all in a specific topic area, whereas this really did seem to be targeting a specific set of political views in terms of journals. Absolutely. And I mean, like, when I first found this uh, article, I was actually, like, I was laughing. Like, I was just like, wow, a bunch of journals got duped into accepting a bunch of bullshit. But then, like, as I was reading it forward, like, there are quotes from, like, center and center-right, or people who could be described as that uh, from a political standpoint uh, academics um, mostly in quote unquote like more rigorous social sciences or also even hard sciences who were then just going well see this is why this entire all these different subfields of humanities are nonsense um, for example uh, there is like literally a quote um, in response to this hoax from Steven Pinker um a cognitive and evolutionary psychologist uh, who basically said, is there any idea so outlandish that it wouldn't be published in a critical identity theory journal? Um, another quote from a political scientist uh, who just found the entire the entire hoax hilarious and delightful, mainly because they're just poking fun at these particular areas. Right, and then it confirms a set of beliefs around the ideas as to which areas of science are more rigorous or not. Whereas, like, right now, based on this one article alone, I can't necessarily tell you what if there are other areas of science that tend to be more rigorous in terms of the papers that they accept. But if you look through, uh, there's a website called Retraction Watch. Mm. I believe it's put out through Scientific American. Uh, but there is a list that's regularly updated of papers that are pulled from peer-reviewed journals because they're eventually found to be bullshit for one reason or another. 
often because of data falsification, because of ridiculous things like this where the ideas make no fucking sense and maybe actually do some harm. Yep. And you'll see papers across different fields. In the social sciences, in the hard sciences, There's there was a recent scandal about a lot of chemistry papers that were pulled because mm. of one, auth- one of their authors was found to have falsified a lot of data, and then people went through his papers that he wrote and were like, hey, his stuff here doesn't actually make any sense. Yeah. And I think, and like, Mona brings up a really good point. Like, issues, issues in... In, pub- in publishing scholarly work, like, these aren't limited to just certain fields. Like, this is, like, an issue in all of scientific research. Uh, ones that are considered more rigorous, like chemistry, like physics. Um, and, like, wasn't there, wasn't there, like, that, was it, a, was it a physics paper or something in which, like, they got accepted and then there was a note in the paper to, like, one of the principal investigators that just said, oh, just fudge the numbers. I think it was actually a chemistry paper. It was a chemistry paper. But this is a problem across fields. I know we've talked about the replication crisis before as it relates to psychology and that it's a bigger issue compared, like, within psychology than other fields. But I think at this, like, at this point, the actual rates of, like, like, flat-out falsification, we don't necessarily have numbers for no, um, we don't. And targeting a specific field with a political interest and then being like, see, those guys over there did that. Yeah, it's definitely a problem. But I think it's a problem that's worth assessing across the board to determine where it exists. And really, I, I think it's a good exercise in examining where our biases are in terms of what we consider to be legitimate analyses, legitimate points of view, and research that in a rather quick fashion, maybe a reviewer is particularly busy, uh, probably doesn't take days upon days to read the entire paper, mm-hmm. as he probably should, given the length of a lot of these papers. If, yeah. you're, if you're submitted a 30 to 40 page manuscript to review on a regular basis, that takes a lot of time to be it able does. to take it apart. And that's... That's a bit of a separate issue that we're going to talk about later on. Um, but reviewers often don't have and aren't given the opportunity to actually review things at the level of depth that they may actually want to mm. or need to to make these assessments. People take shortcuts. People determine where they can take mental shortcuts and do so more and more over time. Absolutely. Heuristics. It's a pretty common human phenomenon. Uh, Danny Kahneman won a Nobel Prize for actually coining this term. Mm, And it's an important, it's an important thing to consider where people have biases, take shortcuts, and where we might be missing key information that we're then putting out to other people. It's definitely, there's definitely room to have potentially done a lot of harm here. By publishing articles like this, it makes a mockery of certain fields. It does. I think, like, to get a little meta about it, like, if the authors who, who in who in this New York Times article, like, proclaim themselves to be a left, uh, that they're on the left in terms of, like, political ideology and actually are very interested in social justice areas so that they're not, like, these right-wingers who are just, like, attacking uh, the critical theory and the feminist uh, journals. Um, their argument, you know, the proposed argument, that, oh, we're just trying to make sure that methods and theoretical grounding is solid and rigorous, yet I think their method of approach here was problematic like they were not paying attention to these like these potential consequences like i don't think they may have had 
this conversation amongst themselves that, hey, if we reveal that we've done this massive hoax just on these individual journals or these particular areas, this might cause more problems than actually solve. Yeah. Like you are creating essentially a situation in which those journals had to immediately retract these papers. Um, like one one journal editor in particular just said that this was just, you know, incredibly disappointing given that time was uh, spent, you know, submitting these papers to reviewers who then took their time to review them, depending whether or not how serious they may have like spent time reviewing them. Um, journals put effort into making sure that, you know, like these were published properly, at least like to some extent to their standards. So I think there wasn't enough thought in the process of going about revealing this issue in academic research. Yeah. Uh, so the, the, the method applied to going about this was a bit flawed, ironically. Hmm. So I think like articles like this actually lead into a bigger issue as to the state of peer review in academia or academic research as a whole. In case you haven't determined that we have a general theme with our podcast, that it's like, here's a small issue and here's a larger fucking issue, which it tends to represent. We, 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 we might have a bit of an agenda in that respect. But <laughs> see, highlight- agenda, theme, general sense of problems within the Highlight- field. Yeah. Highlighting some of these issues. Yeah. And, I mean, well, first and foremost, I mean, like, going through a paper to review it, to critically analyze it, that, that's work. Like, that's time out of your day. When you could be teaching, uh, writing your own re- uh, research papers, doing your own research, applying for your own funding. Right. I, I was actually really surprised when I found out that you aren't paid to review papers for a journal. No, which is even funnier considering um, that most journals, so reviewers aren't paid. People are not paid for submitting to those journals, but then you have to pay to purchase access to those journals. Which we joked about in the last episode, setting up a fund to get through the paywall. Unless you happen to belong to an academic institution that purchases a subscription to a specific journal, and most of them do. Like, Mm -hmm. most of them do have subscriptions, but they don't necessarily have all of them, and not always the ones that you need to do your work. So, often you'll end up looking for scholarly papers, and sometimes you'll notice, like, the ones we've, the links that we've put in our description, a lot of times it's like, oh, yeah, you can purchase full access for, like, $45 to read this one paper. Yeah, your average article is, like, yeah, anywhere from, like, 30 to $45. And in many instances, like, you know, there are a lot of papers that are, you know, important to read, to go through cover to cover, but especially with, like, a lot of, like, basic research that you're doing to get a feel for, like, what, like, you might want to do with a follow-up study or in general, you're not going to devote a lot of time to, like, a particular paper. Like, when you get a paper abstract methods results some of that discussion very rarely are you going through like the 20 page introduction and so yeah if you don't have a subscription you're paying upwards of 20 like yeah 30 to 50 dollars uh to read one paper so in many instances you can have an instance of an academic through like through no no economic benefit to them submitting a paper going through the review process, having it submitted, and then having their own work effectively hidden through a paywall. Yeah, which leads into the topic that we want to talk about today, which is a report called The Global State of Peer Review, which was published in 2018, which interviewed between 11 and 14,000 academics from all around the world. This survey that was given to them asked a bunch of different questions about 
their experiences within research, their experiences engaging with peer review as both somebody submitting papers as well as somebody who's been reviewing papers. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to focus on a couple of key questions that were discussed here in the actual uh, report, which we're going to link in the description. There are some really good visualizations to take a look at uh, all of the different questions that were asked of these people. And I strongly encourage that you take a look at this yourself. It's a fairly easy read. It's fairly easy to get through. And it's pretty informative. Very. So one of the questions that was discussed here says, please select up to two of the following that you feel are most important to your overall career success. And the overwhelming majority of people who responded to this were academics working within a university setting. Yep. There were some, like, I think, like, the second highest proportion were individuals, like, in, like, research institutions. But, yeah, for the most part, people who's, like, who are predominantly being paid to either teach or just do research. Yeah. So, the number one choice here that was ranked were about 55% of people said were success is being published in respected journals. Whoa. Yeah, 55%. 55%. And right after that, uh, at about about 36% was securing grant funding. Yeah. So basically for researchers in the academic and private research industry, the two things most important to them were being published in top-tier journals and getting the money to do their research. Yeah, and if you look at the types of the other questions that tended to rank significantly lower afterwards, it's actually pretty sad. It's very sad. Yeah. Um, What's uh, success of graduate students you supervise is at a dismal 12%. Yeah, so basically 12% of people who responded to this survey, and there were 14,000 respondents to this question, 12% of them said it's one, one of the top two things they give a shit about or they consider to be important to their success is whether or not their graduate students succeed. And that's really bad because as we see, like there's just an influx of people in graduate school. Like we're at a place economically where people really do kind of have to go to grad school to like pursue a ton of like advanced careers but they're entering an environment in which the people who are supervising them don't really have a priority to make sure that they have a fulfilling rewarding or rigorous experience in relation to their trainer right and i'm not gonna i'm gonna assume that most of them actually care but don't necessarily have the space or time to actually prioritize the graduate students and their graduate students that they supervise in the way that they want to. Absolutely. I mean, like, if you if you think about it, like, an academic is someone who's, like, taking on multiple full-time jobs. They are simultaneously being tasked to be an educator, to teach their field to people, whether they're undergraduates or graduate students. They are being tasked to be researchers in their area, to know their field cold enough to then come up with novel research ideas and then disseminate those to publications conferences like those two things alone are full-time jobs i would argue that training and matriculating another scientist under you like training a graduate student is a job in and of itself yeah and reviewing people's papers in peer-reviewed journals is another job on top of that yeah considering that these aren't things that people are generally paid for you're essentially being asked to do free labor on top of your already pretty hefty workload. Oh, yeah. So a lot of times, yes, you're going to cut corners. Easily. Yeah. I mean, it's more so kind of like a prestige thing to just be a, a reviewer, uh, something to put on your CV, 
that you've done this, that you've reviewed a series of papers, but yeah, this is time out of your day. Like in the publisher parish environment of academia, when you need to be focused on writing your own papers to submit, this is time out of your day. Yeah. And arguably it's a useful time out of your day if you had the time, but a lot of times that isn't the case. So one of the things that was brought up in this uh, report as well was asking whether or not people received any training Yep. Uh, for being a reviewer and what it takes to review a paper. And and what I think was really important is that, like the question before that explicitly asked, like, how important do you think that it would be for like, there to be like an official kind of peer review training process? And overwhelmingly, a majority of respondents, somewhere like up to like 80%, put either extremely important or important or extremely important. Uh, the subsequent question asked respondents, what formal education in relation to like peer, formal training uh, for peer review have you received? And overwhelmingly, a majority of respondents, 40%, uh, like 40% said that they have received no official training. Uh, and then another 36% admitted that this was just like some self-selected readings. Yeah, so basically people are asked to be reviewers without any real sense of what it actually means to be an effective reviewer. Yeah, which I think like the more kind of formalized the peer review process has become, the more kind of formalized the publication process has become, there is a need for a very formal peer review training process. Like it used to be just the idea of like, oh, people in your field just read your work, provided some really good feedback for you to then go back and change your work, make edits. But like this is a substantial part of the publication process now and we're still relying on just, oh, well, if you just know the area, you know how to critically uh, analyze uh, this work. Yeah, and not necessarily. A lot of times your work is so hyper-specific, you don't necessarily know every single thing about everything tangential or vaguely related to your field to be able to properly evaluate it. And even if you do, you're reading through a lot of numbers, a lot of statistics, perhaps a method of analysis that you're not familiar with. Mm-hmm. And you may not always have the tools necessary to, the tools and the time necessary to properly evaluate this paper. This is another area where we're suggesting a lot of shortcuts end up being taken. Another thing that actually was discussed in an article about this report was about how it's getting harder and harder to get the review process done. Mm. Yeah, so another piece of information around this report that was discussed, and this this is actually a separate article that we're also going to link in the description, Mm -hmm. as we always do, was the idea of uneven contributions. So, interestingly enough, people in the United States who are within academic research tend to be asked to review papers at a ridiculously disproportionate rate compared to other parts of the world, and mm. much more than the, the, amu- the amount of papers that you tend to see published from the United States. Mm. So, in essence, if you have papers that are being published in different areas of the world, you'll essentially have researchers disproportionately then be in the United States being asked to review them. So it's possible that there's a real sense of reviewer fatigue in the United States and maybe other area like other areas of the world as well. Very much so. Yeah, where you're asked to review it's in essence more and more and more papers and then you have the problem where journals are then unable to find enough reviewers in the areas that they tend to seek them out to complete their reviews and get papers out on time. So Believe it or not, based on this, a lot of reviewers don't actually complete their reviews, which makes some sense if you consider what we've discussed, where 
a lot of reviewers, like reviewers don't get paid. It's something that's often just expected of them that they have to do on top of their work. And this was actually brought up in the survey as well, was that the 14,000 reviewers were asked, why do you peer review? And the number one reason was just, it's a part of my job. Yeah, and I think what's, like, for the for the idealistic uh, academic in me, um, what was very painful about this was reading that, like, the fourth, mo- fourth most popular choice uh, for why do you peer review uh, was to ensure the quality and integrity of research published in my field, which I personally feel should probably be, like, number one. Right, and I think that's where the idealistic response might be, is, like, you understand on some level, yes, it's necessary to ensure the quality of work. But if you're doing this at a level that uh, takes up, it takes up a lot of your time, you're forced to take shortcuts in order to be able to complete the number of reviews that you're expected to do. You're prioritizing the fact that it's just a part of your job and it's something necessary to maintain and advance your career, as opposed to something that's necessary for a greater good of the advancement of your field as a whole. I mean, like, this is kind of just like the natural conclusion of the publisher parish environment within academia if one's entire career within academia is focused on pumping out papers novel findings all the time no replications uh then you're then being forced to then review other papers there then becomes limited time to do things like quality ensure uh that every paper that you're reviewing um have solid method have solid methodology you're then taking away time from ensuring that the graduate students under you are being trained properly and that are matriculating into sophisticated researchers that can actually contribute just as much as you can uh we're in a environment in which academics are just forced to pump out work to not much economic gain of their own uh to benefit publishing companies and that's really fucking sad yeah it's like academics have been forced into uh the state of nature you're the philosopher you can explain that one oh that's so poignant oh no that's (laughs) oh god yeah no this is this is painfully sad um this is we are losing kind of like i what i would argue like an essence to uh like the goal of uh, the academy the uh, development and the sharing of knowledge and now sort of just to pump out super expensive papers for publishing uh, journals to charge for. I mean, we can go on and on about issues in academic publication. Um, I had, I know like researchers uh, in the area who even done like studies to show like, um, to reveal like predatory journals, um, journals that are just like reaching out to academics uh, to just like take anything, like take take any research they have but that are inherently just also accepting bad papers as a whole this is not good yeah you're right is that academia is sort of like treated on the outside as if it's this great collective collaborative effort to advance science as a whole but people are now at a point where they're just cannibalizing each other to keep their jobs pretty much like it's it's the complete opposite of what the ideal of academic is sort of portrayed as yeah and i think What's really sad about some of this, all of this, is that I remember being an undergrad and sitting down being bored one day reading a bunch of uh, journal articles just because I was like in the library, had some time on my hands, and I kind of just ended up in the rabbit hole of like different papers. And I remember finding like, some really interesting papers, like fascinating topics. And I remember going like, this is amazing. Like people should have access to this information. People should be talking about these things. Like these are really interesting topics. And uh, to my disappointment, I think like the next week, 
when I was in a research lab, it was explained to me to a, a PhD student that really the only people who read your work, if you are an academic, are your enemies. People, <laughs> <laughs> people who don't like you, who want to read through your work and find a flaw in it uh, and maybe prevent it from being published or the, so that they can respond to it. And I think the more and more we've put uh, academics in an environment which they just have to play this game, we have diluted the quality of research, the research is being done, but and also how it's being disseminated. Yeah. I don't think this is an issue we're going to solve in, or even properly address in any no, any small number of episodes. Not at all. This is just us complaining about it from our own personal experience and just seeing others who we know in different areas go through it. Right. But it's also something to think about where there is a process in place that is meant to keep poor research from being published, but it is flawed. Yeah. So it's something to consider when you are evaluating different areas of research. And when you see criticisms of different areas of research, like the New York Times article, keep in mind that it may not just be that field. It is These are problems that are pervasive across most of academia. Yeah. Most is just like scholarly research as a whole. Yeah. Um, these are important things to kind of keep in mind as we critically analyze science and all kinds of research. Yeah. Well, that's it from us this week. Yeah, that's where we're going to sign off for this week. Yeah. Um, we've got some really interesting episode ideas uh, in the pipeline. You know, like a little bit of a snippet, maybe going through some... Uh, we've got a really interesting paper topic going through subjectivity in uh, research or statistical analysis. We also have a wonderful series of friends of ours who will be joining us as guests in coming episode to teach us and to teach you about areas of science in which we are not as proficient as this mm-hmm. and we are looking forward to sharing this with you yeah and as always if our listeners have any interesting papers uh things they want us to discuss topics they want us to discuss uh you can reach us via email uh reach us out on our twitter page badmethodspod at gmail.com or twitter at badmethodspod All right, we will see you guys next time.